Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. Hear God's holy and inerrant word. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this passage today to focus on, focus our thoughts on. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired Luke to write these words. And now we ask you, Spirit of God, that you will come and illumine our hearts and open our minds and open our ears and our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's awfully good to be back with you. Uh, Greetings from University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, and uh, same presbytery, same denomination, and uh, I look forward to spending some time in God's Word with you all this morning. I thought when I dropped my last kid off at college that my work as a parent was done. (laughs) He's 18, I said to myself. He's off to college now. He's on his own. It's Susie and Mike time. I can get on with my life. And as you know, those of you who have kids, I was very mistaken. Parenting doesn't stop when your kids go off to college. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. The college kid calls up and needs money again and again and again. And then he graduates from college, but he's making no money, so he moves back in with you. And then he finds an apartment, and he needs you to show up and help him move in. A few years later, the kid wants to get married, and you have to pay for the wedding. And then they get married and start having children, and now you're a grandfather or a grandmother. It never ends, does it? Susie and I have 11 grandchildren. 
Every time I turn around, it's somebody's birthday. Another $10, $20, $50. It goes up in value, you know, as they age. We made the mistake of promising a trip to Disney World to every one of our grandkids when they turned five. But we just didn't know that our children were going to be so reproductive. (laughs) We made a really big mistake a few years ago. We took our oldest grandchild, our our granddaughter Tyler, on a cruise when she turned 13. That was sort of our way of welcoming her into teenagerhood. But now we have to do that for the other 10 kids. Ugh. But you know what makes it all worthwhile? It's when one of our children or one of our grandchildren sends us a text or an email or gives us a phone call or talks with us on FaceTime and says something like, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad, Dad. That's my grandfather name. And uh, not long ago, one of our grandchildren sent us this little note. Where'd I put it? Here it is. This, this makes your day. Dear Gamma and Dad Dad and Annie, that's our dog, I love you with my whole heart. H-O-L-H-A-R-T. I love you with my whole heart. Well, even more. Love, Talitha. So, you know, when we get that in the mail, we'll just empty our pockets and keep spending money. (laughs) It's great. See, it brings you joy, doesn't it? Brings you joy when the people you love realize what you do for them and when they continue to depend on you and continue to thank you, continue to need you for the help that you give them. Well, just like my work didn't end when my kids went off to college, what I want to show you this morning is that Jesus' work didn't end when he rose from the dead either. Sometimes we talk like Jesus' death and resurrection were sort of the last things that Jesus Christ did for our redemption. You know, on Easter Sunday, just several weeks ago, we probably, you, we certainly did, sang that Easter hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today. I love that hymn. But there's a line in that hymn that says, Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight. The battle won. That's not true. (laughs) Love's redeeming work was not done. As great as the cross was, as great as the empty tomb was, love's redeeming work is going on now. Did you notice that in verse 1 of the text this morning? Acts 1 One says that Luke is writing these words and he's writing to what scholars believe to be his benefactor, a wealthy man, Theophilus. And he writes in the first book, that's talking about the gospel of Luke. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and began to teach. See, the gospel leading all the way up to the empty tomb is about what Jesus began to do. But he's still doing, he's still teaching. See, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus simply entered a new phase of his redemptive activity. And that's why this sermon today, and indeed the theme of the worship service this morning, 
is the ascension. If you've been attentive as we've sung these songs and read these words, so much of it was about the ascension of Jesus Christ. This past Thursday was Ascension Day. For many Christians around the world, today is called the Sunday of the Ascension. It's printed that way in the bulletin this morning. Today, followers of Jesus around the world are celebrating the ascension of Jesus Christ. So what is the ascension? Well, it's the event that took place in the life of Christ on the 40th day of Easter. That is 39 days after His resurrection. As it says in verse 9, when Jesus was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of the sight of the the, uh, disciples. And in verse 11, it says that Jesus was taken up from them into heaven. That's the ascension. What did we read earlier in the Apostles' Creed? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The ascension was the physical event in which Jesus, as both God and man, left earth in a real, physical, tangible, but glorified human body and returned to heaven where He is now and where He is enjoying intimate fellowship with the triune God and continuing, see, His work of salvation. Now this is pretty hard to wrap our hands around, isn't it? The very idea that Jesus Christ is alive and well, fully human and fully divine in a place that you and I have never been to before and can't put on a map. It's a place that transcends space and time. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So the whole Bible attests to the fact that Jesus is alive today. He has ascended into heaven and one day he's coming back. So the question we want to wrestle with today is, what is it about that that is worth celebrating? I said earlier that Christians around the world are celebrating it even now. What is it about the ascension that makes it good news? Okay, so that's our question, and I want to answer it in three ways. So let's dive in. Why is the ascension good news? Well, in the first place, it's because it means that the Holy Spirit fills each and every believer and empowers him or her for witness and service. Look at verses 4 and 5 of the text I read. It says that while staying with them, that is, the disciples... Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this was an exciting thought for the disciples when Jesus said that. They believed in Jesus. They knew that he was the Messiah, but they still didn't quite get it. They thought that Jesus was talking about dominion and conquest for ethnic Israel now, right then and there. That's why they ask in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they were hoping that Rome was going to fall. They were hoping that Jesus would take the throne of David. 
that was prophesied in the Old Testament and rule the world right then and there. They wanted an immediate and a visible and a nationalistic fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And Jesus is very blunt with them in verse 7. He says they're sorry, it's none of your business what I'm going to do and when. That's my paraphrase. He said, it's not for you to know times or dates. And in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And sure enough, 10 days after the ascension of Christ came the day of Pentecost, which Christians are going to celebrate next Sunday. And when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon the people, that's when the Spirit of God came in His fullness upon the people of God. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And as you read on through the book of Acts, which would probably be a really good thing to do this week. I don't know if you have a place in the Bible you're reading, but why not let this sermon today kind of be an introduction to the book of Acts? As you read on through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is a group of people totally transformed by the Holy Spirit. The same people who had been timid and intimidated and doubting and fearful just a few days before and had even deserted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when He was getting ready for the cross. And you remember what Peter did. Peter denied that that he even knew Jesus three different times. But after Pentecost, those very same people were men and women of courage and boldness and love and power. You ought to read Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. What you're going to see there is a man ready to give his life for the cause of Christ. What can explain that? I mean, what had happened to Peter and what had happened to these other people? They'd been changed by the Holy Spirit who had descended upon them, whom Jesus had poured out upon them from His throne in glory. Doesn't that encourage you when you think about the fact that you and I have received the Holy Spirit? In verse 8, look at that verse. It says in the second half of verse 8, Jesus is speaking and He he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, you, you can read that verse in two different ways. There, there are two ways you might read that verse. You might read it like this. Uh, Suppose it's your birthday and you've just turned six years old. okay? And you've never ever ridden a bike without training wheels before. Your dad knows that it's your birthday and so he goes out and buys you a brand new bike. He brings the bike home and he says to you, Okay, son. Okay, daughter. It's time you grew up. You will ride that bike. I'm going to be back in two hours and I'd better... See you riding that bike around the neighborhood when I get back. You could read the verse that way. You will be my witnesses. Pure command, right? Get your act together. Come on, get her done. You will be my witnesses. You better be up to the task. Or you could read it this way. It's your birthday. You're six years old. You've never ridden a bike without training wheels before. And your dad brings home for you a brand new bike. And he says to you, honey, I'm going to help you ride this bike. 
I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be right there beside you all the way. If you begin to fall over, I'm going to be right there to catch you. You will ride this bicycle. I guarantee it. Now see, that's the way you're supposed to read verse 8. It's a command, yes. You will be my witnesses. You should do that. But it's also a promise. You will be my witnesses. I guarantee it. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. Why, I'm going to give you the power to do what I ask you to do. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will use you in the building of my church. Now, isn't that encouraging to think that the Holy Spirit has been given to us who are weak who are frail, who are doubting and fearful, and yet the Holy Spirit can empower us to do things that are frankly impossible. You want to know the hardest part of my job as a pastor? If you want to know what the hardest job that I have to do as a pastor, you're looking at it right now. This right here is the hardest thing that I do as a pastor. I don't find it easy to get up in front of people and speak. It does not come naturally to me. I was not born with a gilded tongue. So you know know what I do whenever it's my turn to preach? I ask the Holy Spirit to help me because I'm very weak. I'm an introvert. I know you don't think so, but I'm a classic introvert. To, To think of getting in front of people and having them all looking at me is intimidating. You are intimidating. But the Holy Spirit helps me because Jesus Christ is my ascended Savior. And He sent the Spirit for such a thing as this right here. Ask you a question. What do you find hard to do for the Lord? You know, everybody in here finds at least one thing very hard to do for God. What is it for you? Maybe it's to walk across the street and say hello to your neighbor. And invite him or her to church or into your home for dessert or something like that. Maybe that is so intimidating for you. Maybe it's to give more of your money to the church. Maybe it's to volunteer for a ministry or serve as an officer. Maybe the hardest, you know what? Maybe the hardest thing to do for you in the world is to simply show up here on Sunday morning. Because you feel weak and lonely and scared or inferior or ashamed of your past. Listen again to verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Spirit. Believe that. Ask Him. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you do the impossible and the hard. Ask Him to give you courage and fill you with His power. He will. You know what? I've learned in my years as a pastor, there is nothing that the Holy Spirit enjoys more than filling people who are weak and moving into areas of weakness and helping God's people do things that they didn't think they could do. And that's because of the ascension. Number two, why is the ascension of Christ good news? Not only because it means that you have the Holy Spirit, But it means that Jesus Christ is praying for you and representing you in heaven as your mediator. 
Say that again. Jesus Christ, right now in heaven, the ascended Lord, is praying for you and representing you as your mediator. Romans 8 is a passage that many of us call our favorite. And in Romans 8 verse 34, it says, Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. That's the cross. More than that, who was raised. That's the resurrection who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I I almost hear Paul saying, it's like a a stepladder. It's great that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's greater that Jesus Christ, who died, rose again. And it's even greater than that, that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and is now interceding for you. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that He always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ is your great high priest. Do you know Him as that? He is your great high priest. He has entered into the holy of holies behind the curtain in heaven itself, not with the blood of goats and calves and birds and bulls, but with His own blood sacrifice to appear in the presence of God on our behalf and to intercede for us. So what does that mean? That's a lot of verbiage. It means that Jesus who knows you through and through, who knows you better than you know yourself, who in His divine nature is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, who in His human nature has been tempted in every way, just the same as you, yet without sin, and is able to sympathize with every one of your weaknesses. This Jesus who always prays perfectly and effectively and fervently, and it says in John eleven forty two 42 that His prayers are always heard is praying for you right this moment. Doesn't that just knock you off your feet? Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is praying for you by name right now? What might that look like? What if you were able to somehow listen in on the prayers of Jesus for you? What would he be praying about, do you suppose? Well, I think we have a clue. At least this is one of the many things that Jesus is praying about for you. In the book of Luke, chapter 22, Jesus is in the uh, upper room. He's with his disciples celebrating the Last Supper, and it's just hours before he is arrested and betrayed and tortured and crucified. But in the upper room, when he's still there with his disciples, he looks over at Simon Peter in one moment and he says, Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now notice what Jesus is praying about for Peter. Satan's attack upon Peter's faith. As you might know, a few hours later than that, Peter did give in to Satan's temptation. He denied Jesus three times, like I said earlier. He denied that he even knew Jesus three different times. Satan was sifting Peter like wheat. Isn't that a graphic image? Satan taking Peter and just crushing his courage 
and, and, and crushing his spirit and causing him to be fearful and intimidated by the Roman authorities, sifting Peter like wheat. But his faith did not fail. Thanks to the prayers of Jesus, Peter went on to be what? What we know of him to be, a mighty apostle and a preacher who strengthened the churches. And he's still strengthening the church today through his letters in the New Testament. This same Peter who was sifted like wheat, his faith did not fail. Why? Because Jesus was praying for him. Think of the ways that Satan sifts you. How does he do it? Every single one of us who is a believer in Jesus is being tempted and tried and sifted by Satan. Well, right now, among the many things that Jesus is praying for, he is praying that your faith will not fail. And because of his prayers, you can persevere, keep going, strengthen the church, use your gifts, serve. So when this happens to you, when your accuser is beating you to a pulp, you know, he does that to me. I hear his voice often. You jerk. You think you're a Christian. What a lousy excuse for a Christian you are. That's what I always hear in this ear. And I'm so glad to know that Jesus is praying that my faith will not fail. He may sift you a different way. But Jesus is praying for you. So here's what you should do when that happens. First of all, remember Jesus is praying for you that your faith will not fail. And secondly, think about how much Jesus loves you. Recall to mind the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Remember that He is your perfect high priest. He died on the cross for your sins and they are gone. When He ascended to heaven, the Bible says that He sat down next to the Father. Why did He do that? Why did he sit down? He sat down because he did what he had come to do. That's why. He succeeded. His sacrifice on the cross was accepted at the bar of God. Your defense attorney, Jesus Christ, won your case. The devil lost. That's why you can rest. You can be at peace because of the intercessory work of the ascended Lord. That's why it's good news. Number three, why is the ascension good news? Well, not only because it means that the Holy Spirit has come and empowered you and that Jesus is interceding for you at the, uh, at the right hand of God, but in the third case, it's good news because Jesus is ruling and reigning over the universe right now. 1 Peter 3 verse 22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Now let's think about that phrase, the right hand of God. We've seen it several times in this sermon. I've quoted verses where that's mentioned. It's in the Bible many, many times. With apologies to you who are left-handed, the right hand in the Bible is the hand of blessing. Often, especially in the Old Testament, when you see a Jewish father who wanted to pass on his blessing to his son, he would place his right hand on his head. So it's the hand of blessing, but also the right hand in the Bible is the hand of strength and authority. After God parted the Red Sea so that His people could walk across, 
Moses sang a song. It's in Exodus 15. And one of the things he says is, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In Psalm 110, which is a great psalm about the ascension, it says that the Lord says to my Lord, that is God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my, what, right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And there's a powerful example of what the right hand is all about in Acts chapter 7. That's where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned for his faith. And Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 verse 56, he looks up while rocks and stones are hitting his body and he's bleeding and suffering and falling to the ground. He says, behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing, not sitting, but standing, feeling the suffering of his child Stephen, standing at the right hand of God. It's all over the place in the Bible, the right hand of God. What's it mean? Well, this imagery is God's way of reassuring you that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. As we say many times, He's in control. He is not sitting in a lazy boy recliner you know, thinking about some, some odd thing. He's not taking a walk. He's not on vacation. No, He's seated on a throne. And He rules and reigns over the cosmos. You know, I think many of us view Jesus in our actual day-to-day life a little bit like Luke Skywalker in Episode 7, The Force Awakens. You know, He's out there somewhere. He's on some planet, Octo or something like that. We'll go to Him when we really need Him, but He's not involved in our daily lives right here and now, fighting our battles and delivering us from our enemies. He's not accessible, so we think. But that's not true. You know what that kind of thinking is? That's deism. It's not Christianity. Deism pictures God as being far and away, removed and aloof from His world and from His people. That's not Christianity. Christianity says at the end of the book of Matthew, as it's so well said by Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And He's ruling and reigning and He's authorized to make us, to uh, authorized us to make disciples of all nations. He is the ruler of His world. He is its creator and its Lord. And we are His subjects. You know, we're living in very turbulent times, aren't we? Uh, Glenn, in his prayer, prayed about the death of, I thought it was like 29 Coptic Christians in that bus, all shot up by ISIS terrorists. Every morning I feel like I need to check the news to see where the latest terror attack or shooting has taken place. We really resonate with the words of Psalm 46, 6 that says, The nations rage and kingdoms totter. But because of the ascension of Christ, we don't have to live in fear. We can say the words of Psalm 46, 1 and 2, which say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And if and when we do fear, well, what should we remember? We should remember that our King, our Ascended Savior, is coming back one day and He's going to make things right. 
Just as it says in verse 11 of our text, these two men, they're two angels, come over and say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the ascension is good news for those three reasons. So how should you and I respond to the teaching of God's Word? What difference should the ascension make? I'll give you three takeaways. Try to remember these three B's. First, be courageous. Be courageous in your witness and your service because the ascended Jesus is your prophet. He is empowering you, guiding you, and leading you through His Word and through His Spirit. Secondly, be comforted. Be comforted by the love of Jesus. He is your priest. He is praying for you, serving as your advocate and your defense attorney in heaven. And the third B is be confident. Be confident no matter what happens in this world because Jesus Christ is your king. He is reigning over the cosmos at the right hand of God. One day He's going to return at the head of His conquering armies to rid the world of evil and to establish righteousness and peace upon the new earth. He is prophet, priest, and king. Be courageous, comforted, and confident. You remember what I said at the beginning? It brings Jesus such joy when we remember that His work is going on now. And when we continue to thank Him and trust Him and depend on Him for the help that He gives us from His throne. So let's do that right now as we pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for the fact that You are alive, that You are well, that You are in control, Lord, that You are all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. And Jesus, that you are not far removed from us, but are right here with us in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. You're also accessible. We can pray to you at any moment. And Lord Jesus, though this world seems to be careening out of control into absolute chaos sometimes, we know better. We know that it's not uh, careening into chaos because you're holding the, the, the steering wheel of this universe. You know exactly what you're doing and you are in control. So Lord, we do pray today that as your people, you will help us to be people, men and women and boys and girls of courage, that we'll find comfort in your prayers for us. And Lord, that we'll be confident no matter what happens around us. Would you help us, Spirit of God, to do these three things? In Jesus' name, amen.